You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Look, they used to be around in the 80s and 90s. Not so common today, but very big in the 80s and 90s. I'm talking about the little fish symbol. Remember that? Who had a little fish symbol around their neck in the 80s and 90s? Come on. I see that hand, Valerie. That's right. I have one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Earrings around the neck. Neck. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it, it was very popular. And uh, we all had one of them. Uh, well, many of us have one. And you could actually put one on your bumper sticker to signify your equipment. My driving wasn't good enough for that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you can put them on the window of your car. You can put them on your business card. Little fish or on your letterhead, and it was like a sort of a secret code among Christians because it was the sign that you were a Christian. And uh, I think it went over the head of most non-Christians, but among the Christian community, uh, that was the indication that you were dealing with a Christian. So if you're looking for a Christian plumber or a Christian carpenter or a Christian accountant or a Christian lawyer, uh, then you, I, I promised Kirsty I would not take it any further. Um, then, uh, <laughs> then you knew who you were dealing with, you know, and, and people kind of, kind of like that to, uh, personally, you know, in my experience, when I wanted tradespeople or professional services, I've always wanted people who were good and who were competent and who were reliable. If they were Christian, fantastic, but not necessarily a requirement. On my part, I just want somebody who knows what they're doing. And sometimes you, you got both and you do, you do get both. Well, you may know why these, these, these little fishes were so significant. We can trace their origin back to the first century. The Greek word for fish was ichthus. And the early Christians worked out that that lent itself to an acronym, which basically meant, oh, this Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And so the little fish sign, long before the cross became a symbol for Christianity, the little fish was the key symbol for Christianity. And uh, we're told uh, early historical records, if you wanted to see if a person was a follower of the way, if you drew a little fish on the ground in front of them or on a bit of parchment or whatever, and they drew the fish symbol back, you knew who you were dealing with. It was a coded way in the days of persecution to identify who was who, uh, if you drew a fish and the person wasn't a follower, they probably just think you were doodling in the dirt, you know. But uh, a Christian would respond with the same thing. Look, guys, as far as we can tell, the fish was the earliest Christian symbol, long before the cross ever became the symbol for Christianity. In fact, preceding the cross were things like an anchor. That was very much in vogue in the early part of the, of the, of the uh, second century. Uh, a lamb, a dove, a shepherd. These were all ways of symbolising the Christian movement. According to historians, it wasn't until the early 200s that the cross started to get into prominence as a symbol for Christianity. And it was certainly accelerated when Christianity was declared the religion of the empire around the time of Constantine in the 4th century. And in my preparation for today's message, I found something really interesting. It was not until 400 years after the death of Jesus Christ that in the world of Christian art that there began to emerge images of the crucifixion, both in paintings and in sculpture, 400 years. And there are various explanations for this. Some think it's because of the, uh, the fact that the, the church was more, in, uh, more intent on communicating Christ's resurrection than talking about his crucifixion. 
And of course, the rise of the cross might have been also attributed to the, um, the emergence of the, of, the, of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, whatever it is, whatever the situation, um, we know that, uh, let me make sure I get my, you know what? Oh, danger. Got my, had this only happened once before, got my pages out of order. Uh, can you just, uh, just uh, have another mingle time while I put this page? Uh, who did you catch up with, huh? You'd love to talk again, wouldn't you? Of course you would. <laughs> this is crazy. Now, thank goodness Michael McQueen's not here because he actually celebrated this occurrence last time it happened and thought it was a wonderful thing. Uh, I was sweating bullets, but he, uh, he was actually leading the church himself. Remember that, Sam? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Still talks about it, exactly. Look, guys, here's the thing. Okay, now, now we're on track. This is good. This is the, uh, okay, now, here's the thing. Okay, started off, you know, strong emphasis on the resurrection, moving more to an emphasis on the crucifixion through art and crucifixes and so on. I think in my lifetime, I think I've seen a reversal, a reversal in the trend. I can look back in my early days on sermons, and maybe you can, sermons that were graphic in their detail of the crucifixion. Can anybody remember those? And there were, there were preachers who would go to great lengths Spend the whole sermon talking about the, 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 uh, the length of time it would have taken Jesus to die and the various stages that he would have gone through. They talk about the physiology of crucifixion and the, the medical implications of, of crucifixion. And, and I can remember some horrific descriptions and, and, and very detailed accounts of what that was all about. Well, maybe those early evangelists, maybe they were working on the idea, and to a large extent it's true, that most people find it relatively easy to accept the idea of Jesus the example. That, that, that's an easy one to accept. I mean, he's the one who showed us how to live with his grace and his compassion and his love and his forgiveness. He's our great example. People find it relatively easy to cope with Jesus the teacher, the one who on the Sermon on the Mount outlined a blueprint for moral and ethical behaviour. Uh, people can cope with Jesus the friend and guide, the one who's always there as a source of help and support in time of need. Now, guys, these are all very valid and very important aspects of the life and the ministry of Jesus, of course. But you can get a little bit of pushback when you start to talk about Jesus, the suffering servant, Jesus, the sacrifice for sin, and Jesus, the the saviour of the world, the one who bore in his body our sins and transgressions, the one who in God's eternal plan literally paid the price for our sins. This is the Jesus the average person finds a little bit unpalatable, a little bit hard to to manage. This is the Jesus who demands a decision. This is the Jesus who commands a response. The the great apostle Paul made this discovery in a, a truly memorable way when he went to the city of Corinth, after he'd been to the city of Athens. Now, this requires a little bit of uh, background information. You remember when, when Paul went to the city of Athens? It's recorded in Acts 17. And he sort of tried to mix it with the academics and the philosophers of, of that great Greek city. And for whatever reason, it seems like he, he didn't do all that well. Uh, at least he, he came in for a fair bit of criticism. He actually came in for some derision and some some pretty harsh words. And it was almost like he left with his tail between his legs. It just did not go so well at all. And following that incident, 
Chapter 18, verse 1 of Acts says this, after this, after this little bit of a dust-up, as he tried to interact with the intelligentsia of Athens, after this, Paul left and he went to Corinth. Now, to find out what happened when he went to Corinth, of course, we've got to turn to the book of Corinthians. And we get our answer very quickly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the first five verses. Listen to this. Okay, he says he's been kind of booted out of Athens in a little bit of a... A little bit of controversy with him not sort of quite shaping up in the, in the eyes of the, of the philosophers and the, and the Greek theologians. And he says this, when I came to you, in brackets, from Athens, when I came to you, my friends, here in Corinth, to preach God's secret truth, I did not use big words and great learning. Because he found that in Athens, when he tried that on, that didn't work so well. He says, for while I was with you, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ and especially his death on the cross. So when I came to you, I was weak and trembled all over with fear and my teaching and message were not delivered with skillful words of human wisdom, but with convincing proof of the power of God's spirit. Your faith then does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. How? how how revealing is that verse? Verse 2, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ and especially his death on the cross. Even though in other parts of his writings, uh, Paul was to acknowledge that the preaching of the cross is to many foolishness. Even though he, he, he knew that, but he discovered that very, at the very heart of the Christian gospel, at the very heart stands the cross because it demands a response. It demands a verdict one way or the other. Not that we need to overemphasize the physiology of crucifixion. I don't think we need to go into all the detail of you know, how agonizing it was. Because look, you know what? This may surprise you. That's not the main point of the crucifixion. Jesus was just one of thousands of people who suffered like that. And there have been countless millions of people who've suffered in a similar way, and you'd have to say, in some cases, worse ways. The big difference with him, he was sinless. He was the sinless son of God. But the main point about the crucifixion is not so much the level of suffering. And that's where, just as a personal aside, I just think Mel Gibson might have got that little bit, sort of, a little bit wrong in the Passion of the Christ. That was the main emphasis and the only emphasis. That, 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 that's not the main significance of the crucifixion. No, the significance of the cross in the Christian message lies in the fact that God, our Heavenly Father, our Creator, is demonstrating the depth of His love for His creation. That's the main point. Just demonstrating, declaring in a most dramatic way the lengths that He was prepared to go to to ensure that there was a pathway of reconciliation between a holy God and a fallen creation the length to which he would go to. Uh, Hebrews 2, or rather Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, He, Jesus, did not give up because of the cross. He went the whole way. He saw it to the end. He completed the mission. That's the point of the resurrection, of the crucifixion. That's the central theme. So the cross of Jesus Christ rises above all other Christian symbols and it stands as the pivotal point of human history, requiring a response, requiring a verdict. 
And that's from everyone who's confronted with the reality of this truth, the reality of this incredible symbol. And friends, it raises the question, so what is the response required by you and me to the cross? If it stands as a central symbol of human history now, then what is the response that's required? Look, for the, for the purposes of our time together this morning, I think, I think the response required by us can be summarised, crystallised in five words. Five words. I'm going to give you those words right now. The first one is gratitude. Uh, Kirsty mentioned it earlier in the lead into the, to the offering. Gratitude for what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. As someone has said, he lived a perfect life on our behalf because we couldn't. We could not. He died a sacrificial death on our behalf, so we need not. As Peter says, first epistle, chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Friends, are you filled with gratitude this morning for what Jesus has done on the cross? By his wounds, we are healed spiritually. He's done that for us. That's the first response. But gratitude for what Jesus has done in one thing is one thing. One thing is they thank you, God, for that. That's fantastic. But I mean, as in any area of life, real gratitude only takes shape when it's put into some form of action. I can say thank you, but if it's not reflected in how I respond to you, how I treat you, how I, how I act when I'm with you, then it's a sort of a shallow gratitude. Gratitude has to be backed up by action. Jesus has done an incredible thing for us in the cross of Christ, but it's not real gratitude on our part until, we, we lead, until it leads to, to, us, to another response, and that response is repentance which of course means to turn around. You see, before we can begin to see the cross as being something for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we can see the cross as something that's been done for us, we must see it as something done by us. It's John Stott, the great British preacher and author, who says there's a sense in which all of humanity was there outside Pilate's palace, way back there in the first Easter. There's a sense in which all of humanity was there screaming, crucify, crucify. He goes on to say, it's no good us getting on our high horse and saying, well, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have acted like that. He says, we too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Jesus, like, like Judas rather. We sacrifice Jesus to our envy, like the priests, to our ambition, like Pilate. It goes on. He concludes, unless we are prepared to own our share of the guilt of the cross, we may not share in its grace. John Stott. Before we can begin to see the cross as something for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And that inevitably involves repentance. The third response required in response in respect of the cross is service. Because, friends, at the heart of, of service in, is sacrifice. And sacrifice is what the cross is all about. On one occasion, Jesus gathered a large crowd of his followers around him. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, of course, essentially, it's a verse about self-denial. 
It's about being others oriented. It's about being willing to reach out and become involved in service and ministry to others in a selfless and self-sacrificing way. And we see evidence of that in a church like Northside all the time. People performing ministry at that level, just selflessly putting others before them, visiting, making phone calls, sending emails, attending various events in support of other people and ministering in the community in 101 different ways. You see it in all Christian communities where Jesus Christ is the centre and people are following his teachings. This saying of Jesus is recorded in Matthew, in Mark and Luke. It's not about self-abasement. It's not about self-denigration. You know, you hear this sometimes over the years. You know, people talk about the cross they're carrying and they refer to some medical condition. You know, or to some series of, of bad events in their life. And, it's, oh, it's just the cross I'm meant to bear. That, that, that's not what this verse is about. That's not the kind of cross Jesus is talking about. Self-denial is not a position of weakness and inferiority. It's really a position of strength. Self-denial is a position of strength born out of a belief that we have been blessed by God with gifts, with abilities, with resources, And that it's our privilege to give those in his service. So self-denial, it's a a position of strength. Thanksgiving to God for what we have and the privilege of being able to give and to share. In that sense, Christian service in its many forms is at the bottom line a response to what we see in the cross where Jesus gave his all. Willingly, freely. Time is slipping by. Two more responses to the cross of Jesus. First one is endurance. Not every person who sets out on the pathway of Christianity stays the course. We know that. Not every person. You you know people. I know people who've started out strongly and you're involved in youth group with them and maybe young adults and then you journey with them into their early parenting years and and now, like, they're, they're, they're nowhere when it comes to the faith. They may still have a vague sort of faith, but many of them don't. I've got just more friends than I like to, to think about in that situation. And it can be very sad. Not every person who sets out stays the course. It was Richard Wormbrand, maybe a name to some of you, the champion of the, of the persecuted church of last century. And he, on one occasion, commenting about his experiences in Romania when the communists took over, And he found himself in prison and being persecuted along with other Christians. He asked this question, why did some Christians turn traitor? Because some did. Some gave up, went over full on to the communists. And he says this, perhaps because they were not so much motivated by what they could do for Jesus, but rather by what he could do for them. He goes on, they were not followers of Jesus, more like customers. When the communists opened a shop, and he's talking figuratively, when they opened a shop next door with goods at a lower price, they took the custom there. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty, uh, pretty telling. In contrast, the writer of the Hebrews says of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He saw the mission through. He didn't give up. Friends, let's be honest. The Christian journey is one involving a wide variety of landscapes, isn't it? A great diversity of, of scenery. You've got your mountaintop experiences where you wonder if it could get any better than this and you're being blessed out of your socks. And then you've got the deep, dark valley experiences and you just wonder if you're ever going to see the light of day again. 
and we've all seen both, both extremes. And through it all, endurance is the key. On one occasion, Matthew 24, Jesus talked about what his followers could expect in terms of hardship and, and persecution. And he was particularly referring to the end times. And he says this, he makes a great promise, a great promise in verse 13. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end, responding to the cross involves a willingness in the power of the Holy Spirit to endure. And some of you are finding that's a reality for you right now, enduring despite some of the hardships. Praise God for his enduring strength through the Holy Spirit. But the most powerful of all responses to the cross for us is hope. We can all have tremendous hope in the future because of what took place on the cross. Evil was defeated. Death was relegated to simply an entry point into eternity. That's about the best you can say of death. It's just a, an entry point into eternity. Jesus died on that cross, that hill of death. That's true. But of course, he rose on the third day, paving the way for whosoever will to embrace the reality of life eternal. We had a powerful funeral service yesterday for our brother and our dear friend, and in Annie's case, her husband, Warwick Bramble. And I read a passage at the funeral, which I read last week from this platform, and which should be read over and over again in churches across the world every Easter. Thank God it will be read in most. And this is the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 16. If the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is a delusion and you are still lost in your sins. It would also mean that the believers in Christ who've died are lost. If our hope in Christ is good for this life only and no more, then we deserve more pity than anyone else in all the world. This is Paul talking. He says, but the truth is that Christ has been raised from death as a guarantee that those who sleep in death will be raised. Friends, that's the, like that's the cornerstone of the faith. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it met the road for Warwick and for so many others who've gone before. And friends, these responses to the cross, these aren't just one-offs. You know, like when you come to Christ, oh yeah, you gratitude and repentance and so on. Like, like this is our response on a daily basis. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. He says, take up the cross and follow me. It's a daily expression of gratitude. It's daily repentance. It's daily looking for opportunities to serve in that others-oriented way. It's daily recognizing that life's pretty tough. It was for Jesus. And Christianity is not about give me, give me, help me, help me, save me, save me, heal me, heal me. It's sometimes just the nitty gritty of toughing it out in the belief that at the end of the journey, there's hope. And that's not just something you wait for at the end of the journey. That's a living reality here and now. That's a daily reminder that our hope in Christ is not in vain. It's a daily source of, 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 of power and strength, resurrection power. Paul says we've got it. It's ours to help us respond in all the 
previous ways. Have you faced the cross of Christ? Can you remember a point when you responded initially? Are you responding daily? It's the great privilege we have as, as followers. To hold up the cross of Christ, the unique Christian symbol, and to call people to its claims, and to help people to respond in these ways. That's going to be our privilege, not only at Easter, but it's our mandate for mission and ministry throughout the entire year. Let's join in prayer, shall we?